On July 4, 1937, Dana Randolph switched on his shortwave radio. Dana was 16 years old and had spent much of his young life tinkering with electronics. Rock Springs, Wyoming was about as far away from civilization as you could get. But shortwave radios could receive broadcasts from hundreds or even thousands of miles away. And Dana could pick up on most of them with his brand new antenna. With it, he hoped to hear stations from all over the country. On a clear Sunday morning like this, he thought he might even pick up feeds from Europe. Dialing through the channels, a voice suddenly came through loud and clear on his radio. It was a woman. She sounded scared. She stated, This is Amelia Earhart. My plane is on a reef south of the equator, station KHAQQ. Dana stared wide-eyed at his radio in stunned silence. He'd heard the day before that Amelia Earhart, the famous aviatrix, was missing in the Pacific Ocean. Now, here she was on his radio. As the voice continued speaking, Dana jumped to his feet and ran to get his father. With any luck, they may be able to help the distressed woman. But it would be for nothing. This broadcast was one of the last times anyone heard from Amelia Earhart. And some would assert that the voice on the radio wasn't Amelia at all. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're looking into the disappearance of Amelia Earhart, an aviation and women's rights pioneer. She made international headlines in 1937 when she vanished over the Pacific Ocean. Neither Amelia nor the wreckage of her plane have ever been found. To this day, She is one of the most famous missing persons cases in history. Amelia Earhart was already world famous before she disappeared. By 1937, she was a record-holding aviator, public speaker, and a writer. She even had her own clothing line. In June of 1937, 39-year-old Earhart attempted to become the first woman to circumnavigate the globe. 
but during the final leg of the journey, she failed to arrive at a rendezvous on Howland Island in the Pacific Ocean. Though two ships were on site to help guide her in, they were never able to make direct contact with her. In the 80-plus years that have passed since her disappearance, numerous theories have been put forward in an effort to explain what happened on that fateful July morning. We're going to zero in on three of them. The first is the crash and sink theory. This theory assumes that Earhart was unable to find the rendezvous point and her plane ran out of gas. She was forced to crash land on the open ocean. Her plane sank and Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, drowned soon after. The second theory involves the island of Niku Maroro. Known as Gardner Island in the 1930s, it sits some 400 miles from Earhart's rendezvous at Howland Island. Numerous expeditions and investigations have attempted to prove that Earhart and Noonan landed on Gardner Island and survived for some time before eventually perishing. Finally, the third theory suggests that Earhart landed farther to the west in territory controlled by Japan. According to this theory, Earhart and Noonan were captured by Japanese soldiers and either died in prison or were executed. Nothing in Earhart's childhood would have suggested that she was destined to become one of the most famous women of the 20th century. Her high school yearbook described her as the girl in brown who walks alone. One friend remembered her as odd and said that she spent most of her time in the library. The odd girl in brown was born to a middle-class family in Atchison, Kansas, on July 24, 1897. She quickly proved herself to be something of a tomboy. More likely to be found collecting bugs than hosting a tea party, Earhart once said, The rules of female conduct bewildered and annoyed me. I often wondered why girls in books were not allowed to have the exciting adventures that boys did. Earhart didn't give up on that perspective. In early 1918, when she was 20, she went to work as a nurse's aide in Toronto. While her job was a traditionally feminine one, she was more interested in the Canadian flying school near the hospital. Earhart began spending more and more time there, watching the planes land and take off and getting to know the pilots. She was fascinated. She would later pinpoint this experience as the moment when she first got the urge to fly. She said, It was beautiful and thrilling. My imagination soared. But it wasn't until 1920 that 23-year-old Earhart got to act on that urge when she relocated to Los Angeles to be closer to her parents. The move took her to the heart of a thriving California aviation industry. At that time, Los Angeles had multiple airfields and they hosted numerous public events as well as flight training schools. Within days of arriving in town, Earhart convinced her father to arrange a flight for her. Crammed into the front cockpit with her chaperone, Earhart couldn't contain her excitement as the plane took to the skies. As the craft soared above Los Angeles, Earhart decided that just riding in a plane wasn't enough. She wanted to learn how to fly herself. On January 3, 1921, she had her first flying lesson. 
She proved to be a quick study and took naturally to flying. She continued her lessons for the next six months, working at a telephone company to pay the bills. That July, for her 24th birthday, she took her newfound hobby to the next level. She borrowed money from her parents and her sister and bought herself her very first airplane. It was a yellow two-seat Kinner Airster. Earhart couldn't wait to take her instructor, Netta, out on the plane for a test run. But moments after taking off, one of the plane's engine cylinders gave out, reducing the engine's power. The plane hit the trees and then slammed into the ground on the other side, breaking off the undercarriage and skidding to a stop on its belly. Earhart climbed out of her cockpit and checked to make sure Netta was okay. Once reassured that her instructor was unhurt, Earhart went back to her cockpit and pulled out her handbag. Then she began powdering her nose. When Netta asked her what she was doing, she smiled and said, we have to look nice in case reporters arrive. Earhart had her plane repaired. By December of that year, she'd qualified for a pilot's license and began performing stunts in local flying shows. The modest salary helped her support herself and keep her plane in good repair. It also helped Earhart make a name for herself in the aviation community. And her fame only grew in October of 1922, when she became the first female pilot to reach 14,000 feet. But despite these successes, Earhart couldn't see herself making a long-term career out of stunt flying. Broken records didn't exactly pay the bills. So in 1924, she moved to Boston, where she found a job at an immigration settlement house. Despite her new career, she still kept a sharp eye on aviation news, especially in 1927, when fellow aviator Charles Lindbergh made international headlines by flying his plane from New York to Paris. It was the first solo transatlantic flight in history, and it generated a huge boost of public interest in aviation. The crowds at local aviation shows ballooned. Earhart always braved the crowds to fly her stunts, but was determined not to forget her true passion. In the fall of 1927, not long after Earhart's 30th birthday, she attended a flying show where another female pilot crashed following an engine failure. The crash elicited snide remarks and comments from men in the audience about the ability of women pilots. Earhart was enraged she decided she'd show them what female pilots could do. Racing to the hangar, she jumped in one of the planes, took off, and executed a perfect series of stunts that wowed and entertained the crowd. Her efforts caused a sensation. Even the Boston Globe covered the spectacle. Earhart had proven that women were as capable and daring as men and she'd won the admiration of the entire Boston aviation community while she was at it. The following spring, Amelia was at work at the immigration house when she got a phone call from a man named Hilton Rayleigh. He asked if she was interested in doing something to help aviation. He refused to give any further information over the phone. Earhart was confused but intrigued. 
she agreed to meet with him. When Earhart arrived at Rayleigh's office in New York City, she was greeted by a group of people that included George Putnam, a well-known publisher and explorer. The group quickly got to the point. They wanted Earhart to be the first woman to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. In the aftermath of Lindbergh's transatlantic feat, the race was on for a woman to duplicate his success. And as Putnam and his group started asking around about female aeronauts in the area, Amelia's name kept coming up. But Putnam didn't intend for Earhart to actually fly the plane. In these early days of aviation, the mere presence of a woman on the plane was enough to make international headlines. Earhart was disappointed that she would only be a passenger, but she agreed to the scheme. They scheduled the flight for June of 1928. Putnam handled all the PR, signing lucrative contracts with the New York Times and Paramount Pictures to publicize the event. While Lindbergh had flown from New York to Paris, Earhart took a route from Newfoundland, Canada to London. Lindbergh's flight covered over 3,600 miles, but Amelia's covered just over 2,300. In the end, the flight took a little more than 20 hours. They ended up having to land in Wales, several hundred miles short of London, because of low fuel. But none of that mattered. And it didn't matter that Earhart hadn't flown the plane herself. She became an overnight celebrity. In a 20-hour period, she'd gone from being a mere stunt pilot from Boston to having her name and face on the front page of every major newspaper in the world. Her life would never be the same again. Coming up, we'll see how Earhart transformed herself into an influential public figure before disappearing over the Pacific Ocean. Now, back to the story. In June of 1928, 31-year-old Amelia Earhart became the first woman to complete a transatlantic flight traveling from Canada to Wales. The event turned her into a celebrity overnight. Earhart was treated to a warm welcome on her return to the United States. She met President Calvin Coolidge, gave dozens of interviews, and received a celebratory parade through the streets of New York City. But she worried her fame would be fleeting. That was where George Putnam came in. He made Earhart's notoriety his pet project, arranging interviews, public appearances, and introducing her to politicians and celebrities. Wherever she went, he made sure news photographers were there to snap a picture. In doing so, he prolonged Amelia's presence in the public eye. Earhart took to her newfound fame like a natural. She and Putnam worked together to transform her image from that of a social worker with a pilot's license into that of a public figure, speaker, product endorser, and author. She even wrote a book about her transatlantic adventure. While she and Putnam were busy turning her name into a brand, they also fell in love. They married in 1931. By then, 34-year-old Earhart was preparing another flight across the Atlantic. This time, she would fly solo. 
Ever since her record-setting passenger flight in 1928, she'd been nagged by the feeling that she didn't really deserve all the praise she'd received. She later stated, I wanted to prove that I deserved at least a small fraction of the nice things said about me. So on the fifth anniversary of Lindbergh's famous solo flight, May 20th, 1932, Earhart took off again from Newfoundland, Canada, this time flying alone. Though she wasn't starting in New York as Lindbergh had done, her plan was to land as he had in Paris. But after 14 hours in the air, Earhart's plane developed a fuel leak. Then a weld on the engine housing came loose and the craft started shaking severely. She realized she'd never make it to Paris and instead set down the failing plane as soon as she spotted land. Climbing out of her cockpit in a cow pasture, a farmer told her she was in Londonderry, Northern Ireland. She hadn't gotten to France, but she'd still crossed the Atlantic. In May of 1935, she flew from Mexico City to Newark. Her route included a long stretch over the Gulf of Mexico. It was the first time she had flown over the ocean in daylight. Looking below her at the limitless expanse of water, the reality of the risk she was taking struck her in a whole new way. If her single engine died, she'd be forced to emergency land in the water. She needed to get another plane, one with multiple engines. The Lockheed Electra had just been released earlier that year. It was a big plane, nearly 40 feet long, with two engines under each wing and space for 10 passengers. More importantly, with proper modifications, it could go several thousand miles without refueling. And that was a vital necessity. Earhart was considering circumnavigating the globe. Though several men had already completed this feat of endurance and logistics, no woman had yet attempted it. Earhart saw it as the ultimate challenge and the culmination of everything she'd been working towards for a decade. When Putnam expressed concerns over the risk, she told him, it will be my frosting on the cake. Buying the Lockheed Electra she wanted was going to be expensive. At $80,000, over a million dollars today, it was more than Earhart and Putnam could afford, even with their relatively high incomes. But an opportunity came from an unexpected source, Purdue University. In 1935, Purdue University offered Earhart a visiting faculty position. She advised the Department of Aeronautics and counseled female students on career choices. She quickly became a popular figure on campus, and female enrollment skyrocketed. Within a year, Earhart and Putnam had convinced the administration at Purdue to establish the Amelia Earhart Fund for Aeronautical Research. Its initial budget was used to buy the Lockheed Electra she'd had her eye on since the previous summer, and she'd use it to circumnavigate the globe. Since others had already completed circumnavigations before her, Earhart knew she needed to do something to set her accomplishment apart. So she planned a route that covered more miles than any previous expedition. Gender aside, she wanted to be the best of the best. 
Her 29,000-mile route started and ended in Oakland, California. She planned to cross the equator and travel along the widest portion of the globe. Then she would fly westward, tackling the difficult Pacific crossing. It was the biggest logistical problem. The flight from Hawaii to New Guinea was too far for her plane to fly in one shot, no matter how many fuel modifications were made. And there was simply no good place to land in between. So she'd have to make one. Studying maps of the Pacific Ocean, Earhart and Putnam identified a small island about halfway between Hawaii and New Guinea called Howland Island. Amelia then managed to secure the funds for the construction of an airstrip on the island. Earhart took off from Oakland, California in March of 1937, accompanied by navigator Fred Noonan and radio operator Harry Manning. They made it to Hawaii without any problems. But the next day, she crashed her plane during takeoff, spinning the plane around on its belly and breaking the landing gear. It took two months to repair the damage, and by then, weather concerns forced a change of plans. To avoid the monsoon season in Southeast Asia, Earhart needed to fly the other direction, crossing the United States first, and then the Atlantic. This was problematic because she'd wanted to complete the difficult and dangerous Trans-Pacific stretch at the start of the journey, when she was still fresh and well-rested. Now, she'd have to complete this challenging leg at the very end of the expedition, when she might not be at the top of her game. And though Putnam had made arrangements for necessary maintenance at each stop, Earhart had the same concerns about the plane itself. Its general state of repair would be weakened by the end of the six-week journey. In addition, she lost her radio operator. Harry Manning was spooked by Earhart's Hawaii mishap. He allegedly didn't feel confident in her flying skills with the big Lockheed plane. With no time to replace him, Earhart decided to continue on with just Noonan, even though neither she nor Noonan had much radio experience. Earhart and Noonan took off in the early morning hours of May 20th, 1937. It was the five-year anniversary of the start of her solo transatlantic flight and the 10-year anniversary of Lindbergh's flight. Earhart was two months shy of her 40th birthday. Heading first to Miami, they then made a series of short flights through the Caribbean and South America to Brazil. From there, they crossed the Atlantic to Senegal in West Africa. The journey was largely uneventful. By the end of June, they had arrived on the east coast of New Guinea. They'd had a few issues with the radio, but managed to repair it during a stop in Australia. Everything was now in working order. At 10 o'clock in the morning on July 2nd, 1937, Earhart and Noonan set off for the longest and most perilous leg of the journey. It was an approximately 2,600-mile flight over the open ocean to Howland Island, a tiny speck less than half a mile wide. To help them navigate to the tiny atoll, a U.S. Coast Guard ship was waiting in the area to guide them in by radio. The ship could transmit by both voice and Morse code. 
Additionally, they had equipment on board to pinpoint the Electra's exact location based on radio signals sent from the plane. It should have been a relatively simple rendezvous. But something went wrong on the Lockheed Electra. While the Coast Guard ship Itasca received several transmissions from Earhart in the morning hours loud and clear, Earhart seemed unable to hear any of their replies. No one knows why. Then, the crew of the Itasca attempted to pinpoint her location with their direction-finding receiver, but their equipment didn't work at Earhart's broadcasting frequency, and because she couldn't hear their voices, they weren't able to inform her of the problem. Earhart had similar equipment on her plane that she could have used to pinpoint the Morse code transmissions from the Itasca, but she reported to the ship that she was unable to get a bearing. Either her equipment was malfunctioning or she and Noonan weren't using it correctly. Neither one of them was well-trained in advanced radio operation. As the hours passed, the situation grew more dire. The crew of the Itasca knew Earhart would soon run out of fuel. She confirmed those fears at 7.42 a.m. and reported that she was flying close to the water looking for the island or the thick black smoke coming from the ship's stacks. Following this transmission, there was a long period without any news from Earhart's plane. The crew of the Itasca began to fear the worst. Then, at 8.43, another transmission came through. It was Earhart's voice, noticeably shaky with fear. The radio operator who heard her message later said it sounded as if she would have broken out in a scream. She was just about ready to break into tears. Earhart stated that they were flying along a line that she and Noonan believed would put them over Howland Island. It was the last confirmed transmission the Itasca received from her. Though they continued to receive garbled transmissions for several hours afterward, none could be positively determined to have come from Earhart. With no more signals coming from the plane, the Itasca immediately began a search of the area, aided by ships from the U.S. Navy. In the days following Earhart's disappearance, numerous people reported hearing distress calls from her. Many of these were proven to be hoaxes, but several have never been ruled out, including a report received from Wyoming on July 4, 1937. 16-year-old Dana Randolph heard Earhart broadcasting that her plane was on a reef south of the equator. Randolph's father and uncle also heard the transmission. They immediately contacted the police, who sent them to a local Department of Commerce radio facility. The radio man there notified the Navy, then went to the Randolph house himself. He, like the Randolphs, reported hearing the voice, though by now, it was so weak he couldn't understand what it was saying. A report from the Navy was ultimately transmitted to the Itasca, telling them to begin searching southeast of Howland. They did so and were joined by several other search vessels, including aircraft from nearby Navy ships. The search lasted two weeks, but ultimately came up with nothing. 
It was the most expensive search and rescue ever attempted by the United States up to that time. The government spent $4 million looking for Earhart before calling off the manhunt on July 18, 1937. Amelia Earhart was gone. But not everyone was convinced that she was dead. Coming up, we'll explore some of the theories explaining the mysterious disappearance of Earhart, Noonan, and their Lockheed Electra. Now, back to the story. 39-year-old Amelia Earhart, world-famous aeronaut, disappeared somewhere above the Pacific Ocean on July 2, 1937. Neither she, her navigator Fred Noonan, nor their plane were ever found, despite an extensive search. Their disappearance caused an international sensation. Almost immediately, people began to speculate about what might have happened. It was widely known that Amelia had disappeared during the longest and most arduous leg of her journey over open ocean. With her gas running low, Many people assumed she simply ran out of fuel and crashed in the water, where she and her navigator ultimately perished. This was the official story put forward by the U.S. Navy. We'll call this the crash-and-sink theory. This theory is based on the philosophical notion Occam's razor. First described in the 13th century, this principle assumes that the simplest answer is usually the right one. No trace of Earhart, Noonan, the plane, or any of their cargo was ever found despite countless searches of nearby islands and thousands of square miles of ocean. So perhaps it's safe to assume that Earhart and her Electra are simply sitting on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, where they've been since July 2nd, 1937. But there are several problems with this idea. First, any radio transmissions received after 9 a.m. that morning have to be considered hoaxes. This includes not just Dana Randall's story, but also similar accounts in Florida, Texas, and several other places. While not all of these reports were considered credible, the sheer number of them suggests that there was something odd hitting the airwaves in July of 1937. Second, if the plane had hit the water hard enough to kill or severely injure both Earhart and Noonan, it seems likely the craft would have broken up, spilling its contents and leaving debris in the water that could have been found by search vessels. Yet not one piece of debris was ever seen. If Earhart had managed to land the plane on the water and survive, she and Noonan had rescue equipment, including flotation devices and rubber rafts. If they were uninjured, they'd surely have transferred to a raft. And even if the plane sank and they'd later perished, the raft should have eventually turned up. Plenty of people found these questions too big to ignore, and they've posed several other compelling theories about what might have happened to the aeronaut and her navigator. Which leads us to our second theory. Perhaps Earhart crashed on Gardner Island and survived there for an unknown period of time. According to several post-disappearance transmissions, Earhart claimed her plane was down on a reef. 
16-year-old Dana Randolph insisted that Earhart specifically said it was a reef south of the equator. Another credible transmission was heard by a woman in Texas on the evening of July 2nd. She said she heard Earhart and recognized her voice from radio and newsreels. Earhart said she had crashed on an uncharted island and her navigator was badly injured. The plane, she reported, was half in the water. Yet another transmission, allegedly received in Florida at around that same time, suggested a similar situation, with a plane partially submerged in water and slowly sinking. Earhart's destination, Howland Island, is north of the equator, barely. 400 miles to the south sits Nicomaroro Island, known in the 1930s as Gardner Island. It's the closest landable island south of the equator to Howland. If she'd continued on the line she reported in her last transmission, it would have brought her near Gardner. During the initial search in 1937, the USS Colorado searched the area around Gardner Island. Spotter planes flew over the atoll and reported that there were signs of recent habitation. But this didn't rouse their interest because they had no idea the island had been uninhabited for several decades. But conspiracy theorists wonder if perhaps it was inhabited for a short time by Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. A partial skeleton and a navigational tool were uncovered under a tree at Gardner three years after Earhart's disappearance, adding to the theory that she'd crashed there. But a 1941 forensic study of the bones suggested it was a short male over 45 years of age. Earhart was tall and only 39. This analysis, however, was called into question in the 1990s when another examination determined that the bones were consistent with Earhart's size and were, in fact, those of a woman. But there's no consensus on which analysis is correct. Many contemporary scholars argue that we have no reason to question the original assessment. Ultimately, the bones are less than conclusive. Regardless of the identity of the bones, this theory has been the most popular among researchers over the years. As early as 1937, George Putnam himself searched all the islands in the region, including Gardner Island. And while Putnam found nothing that convinced him his wife crashed in the area, other researchers have been more hopeful. A diverse range of objects that might have belonged to Earhart, Noonan, or their Lockheed Electra plane have been found on Gardner. These include a zipper, shards of American-made bottles, and a jar matching the ones used by an American freckle ointment company during the 1930s. There's nothing definitive about this evidence. Between the time of Amelia's disappearance in 1937 and the collection of these artifacts, there have been other inhabitants of the island who might have left these objects behind. A community of Gilbertese natives lived there from 1936 into the 1960s, and U.S. Coast Guardsmen were stationed there throughout World War II. There's one artifact in particular that researchers have identified as telling, however, a shoe. 
It's the kind of Oxford Amelia wore during her flight and a women's size nine, which, based on photos of Amelia, this looks like it was more or less her shoe size. But even this artifact is less compelling than it initially seems. Amelia's sister and two surviving pairs of her shoes all indicate that she wore a woman's size six. The shoe couldn't have been hers. Still, the hope that something might be found on Gardner Island has not waned. In 2012, a photograph taken on the island in late 1937 was digitally enhanced. The enhancement reportedly showed what appeared to be a Lockheed Electra landing gear sticking up out of the water near the wreck of an old ship. In August of 2019, the New York Times reported that Robert Ballard, the underwater explorer who found the Titanic in 1985, was heading to the island to search for the plane. The picture had convinced him that it was worthwhile. But if the plane is there, why have no previous expeditions seen it under the water? The answer to that question is simple. Gardner Island is actually a plateau sitting atop a 10,000-foot underwater mountain. If the post-disappearance radio transmissions are accurate, Earhart may have landed near the edge of the island, and her plane may have slowly slid off that edge with the tides. Ballard's exploration of Gardner Island is currently underway. His ship has state-of-the-art equipment unlike anything that has previously been used by searchers. These include remote-controlled cameras and vehicles that can go as deep as 20,000 feet. It remains to be seen if his expedition will find anything. If it does, the story will be complete. But if it doesn't, then perhaps proponents of our third and final theory will feel justified. Supporters of this theory claim that Earhart and Noonan didn't crash anywhere near Gardner Island, or Howland Island for that matter. Instead, they believe the pair crashed farther west. Earhart and Noonan were captured by the imperialist Japanese and died at their hands. This theory first gained notoriety in a 1943 propaganda film called Flight for Freedom which depicted an Amelia Earhart-inspired character as an American enlisted to spy on the Japanese during her global circumnavigation. The film was not based on fact or research and was intended to stoke anti-Japanese sentiment as World War II raged. But its impact has been enormous. It birthed the idea that Amelia Earhart's disappearance was tied up with Japanese-American foreign relations. Propaganda is not the most promising start for a theory, but over the years, theorists have attempted to find more substantial proof that there's a real story behind the film. The most compelling things they've turned up are eyewitness accounts from Pacific Islanders of a Caucasian woman and man. These witnesses say they saw the pair on Japanese-controlled islands around the time of Earhart's disappearance in 1937. But there's a major problem with the theory. None of these Japanese-controlled islands were anywhere near Howland, Earhart and Noonan's target on the day of their disappearance. In fact, early versions of the Japanese capture theory 
suggested that Earhart landed on Saipan in the northern Mariana Islands. Saipan is nearly 3,000 miles from Howland Island. Barring a catastrophic navigation error, it would have been impossible for Earhart to have been anywhere close to Saipan. And it's worth pointing out that Fred Noonan was known as one of the best Pacific Ocean navigators in the world. He likely would never have made such an enormous mistake. More recent versions of this theory have suggested that the plane crashed not in the Mariana Islands, but rather in the Marshall Islands, the closest of which was less than a thousand miles from Howland. Proponents of this theory believe the islanders destroyed the plane and Earhart and Noonan were arrested and either executed or died in captivity. Stories of supposed eyewitnesses from among both Japanese civilians and soldiers have abounded over the years, though none have ever been substantiated. In 2017, a photograph surfaced that supposedly showed both Noonan and Earhart on a dock in the Marshall Islands. The woman wasn't facing the camera, but she had a similar build to Earhart and appeared to be Caucasian. She also had Earhart's celebrated short haircut. Nearby was a man who also appeared to be Caucasian. Some theorists wondered if they had crashed there and later been transported to Saipan, where they died in custody. Though it caused a stir at the time, the photograph and the cable documentary that sensationalized it were quickly discredited. The photograph wasn't dated, but an astute researcher was able to show that it had been originally published in 1935, two years before Earhart's flight. Of the prevailing theories, none is completely satisfactory, which is one of the reasons why Earhart's disappearance remains such an enduring mystery. It seems unlikely that Earhart and Noonan were ever imprisoned by the Japanese. Despite supposed eyewitnesses, no one has ever been able to provide hard evidence of their capture. Neither has anyone ever credibly demonstrated how Earhart could have been so far off course. It seems possible that Earhart could have ended up on Gardner Island, but countless expeditions, searches, and investigations into this theory have failed to produce any credible evidence. In the end, we think a combination of the first and second theories is the most likely answer. The credible post-disappearance radio transmissions imply that Earhart didn't simply crash, sink, and perish. But there's no strong evidence she was ever on any island. So while we think it's likely she crashed on a reef somewhere, we believe she was too far away from land to escape her plane. Whether this reef was near Gardner Island or somewhere else can't be known for certain. Following her crash, she sent radio transmissions for a while, perhaps while tending to an injured Noonan. Eventually, the plane sank and both flyers perished. But how could listeners in the mainland United States have heard these signals when the nearby ships couldn't hear them? It's actually not so difficult to believe. Depending on things like weather and even the time of day, shortwave radio signals can sometimes be heard more clearly at great distances. The U.S. Coast Guard acknowledged this when sending their report of Dana Randolph's story to the Itasca. The report stated, 
Randolph's information may be authentic, as signals from the Mid-Pacific and Orient are often heard inland when not audible on the coast. Amelia Earhart's legacy has lived on even beyond the search for answers about her disappearance. She was more than just a female pilot. She rose to become one of the pioneers of the early days of aviation, normalizing the profession and playing a key role in the development of passenger airline service. In addition, she is today regarded as an icon of female empowerment, having shown an entire generation of young women that they didn't have to abide by traditional gender roles. Earhart herself once stated, there are a great many boys who would be better off making pies and a great many girls who would be better off as mechanics. Among her many friends in life was First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. After Earhart's disappearance, Roosevelt summed up her legacy. She helped the cause of women by giving them a feeling that there was nothing they could not do. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. For more information on Amelia Earhart, amongst the many sources we used, we found Candace Fleming's book, Amelia Lost, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, But now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Gone for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, and Carly Madden. This episode of Gone is written by Scott Christmas and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>